are actually not too far from being through judges because uh, moving quite along trying to cover this stuff subject. So you want to look at Jephthah uh, today, and I didn't quite finish everything that we were dealing with last week with Gideon's son of Bimelech. We uh, left off with him after he killed his 70 brothers. Uh, is the one that escaped Gotham and gave him a little parable about the uh, trees looking for a king and basically saying, you have chosen unwisely and that's going to come back on you and you're going to end up destroying yourself. And so in the latter part from 20 of Judges chapter um, 9, uh, especially the latter part, we see that prophecy come true where the uh, men of Shechem who had kind of put Abimelech into uh, power, they end up turning on him. Uh, you know, we have the old saying, there's uh, no honor among thieves, right? Because you're a thief. So uh, that's kind of how it works. So that's what we see played out here. And it's always interesting that even when God tells the rebellious ahead of time, as, as Jotham does with this uh, parable, what their end is going to be, they still do it willfully. They, they do it anyway. And it reminds us that their actions weren't a direct result of God's decrees, but their own will. So I'm not trying to say that God's not sovereign, of course. But when Christ says, you will not come to me that you may have life, it is not that God has decreed that you will not come to him. That That's not how the Bible presents those things. It is that God is not going to interfere with your sin. He's going to let you do what you want to do. And therefore, you are not going to be coming to him. Um, they hate God. So God is not going to interfere with their hatred. If God's decrees do not interfere, is not going to interfere with their will for his own purposes. Um, and so God's going to use evil to destroy evil. You know, and that's what the sin does. The world always destroys itself. The self-seeking opportunists and murderers are never going to make good companions anyway. And so it, we, we see here just how important it is to have good leadership, uh, but we see the nature of sin. And in uh, this day, there, of course, when this comes through, uh, the men of Shechem rise up in rebellion. They choose another leader that rise up in rebellion against Abimelech, and Abimelech pretty much destroys them. And he does that. Remember, he, he uh, surrounds this one tower at Shechem and burns it and kills a thousand men and women. And then he goes to this other uh, city, kind of finish off the next group, and that worked well. So he, he does going to do the same thing with this tower. And a woman throws a millstone out and, kill, and hits him on the head, and he's dying. And his handwriting's on the wall, so he has a uh, one of his companions go ahead and kill him. So it can be said that Abimelech wasn't killed by a woman, which of course in reality is not true. He was killed by a woman. Um, but in that day, that was the humiliation for a warrior and the leader. And so Abimelech meets the, uh, the inglorious in that he deserves. The bottom line was that Abimelech was a self-serving leader, while his father not it, it didn't always do the best thing, but he kept the Lord as the ultimate king. Self-servers always lead to destruction and ruin. In other words, they always produce bad fruit, which is what the parable said. Remember that the trees that should that, that bore fruit uh, were did not walk that honor. They chose uh, the bramble, the one who could not bear fruit. 
And so we just, and, I, and I'm not going to spend the time about going through last week and all this, but it just reminds us about how careful we are to choosing pastors uh, and leaders, and uh, that a pastor who is like Abimelech, who is a self-serving uh, man, is not going to bring any fruit to the church. In other words, to you, his preaching is not going to be uh, blessed by God. And that would just make common uh, sense. And of course, let's not get started on the way that would play out in civil government. Bad leaders, in fact, Proverbs talked about this some. Uh, you know, good leaders are a blessing to a nation. Bad leaders are the ruin of a nation. And, you know, plays over and over again throughout world history. But um, in chapter 10, we have the two smaller or lesser judges after uh, Jephthah, or not after Jephthah, before Jephthah, after Gideon. Tola and Jair, they're minor judges, minor in the sense that we don't have, we have very, you know, less ink about, about them. And uh, we see here in chapter 10 that God sends men to restore things, but also chapter 10 sets up the need for Jephthah as you get down to the latter part of chapter 10, um, if we talk, let's just look at chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, first of all. After Bimelech, there arose the same to Israel, Tola, the son of Pulah, son of Dodo, well, I guess I it, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried at Shemir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel for two years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities uh, called Haboth Jair to this day, which are the land of Gilead. And Jair died in the very kingdom. Whether there's any significance in any of that, I don't know. But, it, you know, it's just it's a historical record. And uh, so you have that. But then you have, uh, after that, Israel sinning. And uh, what's interesting about in chapter 10, we've already alluded to this earlier, but uh, here they cry out to the Lord as the Ammonites come against them, and, uh, and, it, and it says they, they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord says, well, you know, you've sinned against me, you've forsaken God, so what do you expect me to do? And, and uh, you know, you, this is, he kind of gets on to them for this constant repetition, and it says that they actually not only repented, but they uh, turned, you know, threw out the old, the dogs with the bales and all that and started worshiping God alone. So, I think there's questionable as to see this as actual repentance, although I'm sure there were God's people involved in all this, but this was, uh, but we see here what true repentance is. It's a change of direction. But you got the Ammonites who uh, are coming up, and, you know, they're, they're going to uh, come up against Israel at Gilead, and so uh, the people of Israel have asked for God to send a deliverer, as it were, and, and so since they have repented, God says, I'm going to do that. And in chapter 11, he raises up uh, Jephthah. And so that kind of brings us today. Let me just uh, remind ourselves of some of the stuff that we talked about last week. We saw uh, with the, the remember, this, what we saw last week primarily was uh, Gideon not ending well, and we talked about how we want to end well as Christians, we want to remain strong and faithful to the Lord all of our days. We must be careful of looking for leaders that cater to what we want, that feed us the bread of life, which again is how we 
saw was Abimelech. And then we, uh, a point that I made at the end that I wanted to emphasize again, and that is we must remain, we must keep our family relationships in the right priority with our relationship with the Lord. He is always first, and everything else is to aid us in serving Him. We are here to aid our family to that end. And that's that last phrase that I want to just mention here again. It's one thing, and it's truth, obviously, as you just said, for us to look at our family, our job, whatever, as things given to God, by God, to us, to me, to serve the Lord with. But that can be a self-serving thing if you don't keep in mind also that you have been given to the church. You have been given to your wife, to your spouse, to your children to aid in their serving the Lord as well. So it's equally important to realize that life isn't about everything and everyone helping me to serve the Lord. It is that. But it's not just that. I am here also that I can help others in service. Which means I might be made low so that my wife or children or friends might go, might do, excuse me, greater things for the kingdom of God. So you to be careful of that. Well, my wife, my family, uh, you know, God gave that for me to serve him. Gave me them to serve him, which is true. But it might mean that you're going to uh, be the one who gets sick, who goes through trial, who might die, or whatever. So one of your children can uh, be, uh, it, it can be part of what God is going to do for your child as he grows up and ministers to the Lord. And it might be that you never will get very far. You're going to have a life of suffering to help somebody else. And it's just something I thought, well, you know, I want to make sure that we understand that because it's easy to think it's all about me and forget that it's all about the Lord and however that turns out is okay. So to miss this point, I think we'll be devastated. We have to be careful of viewing everything just from our own point of view. And so, you know, I might not ever amount to much, but if in my, uh, whatever I've done to help my wife or help my children to serve the Lord better, then that's what matters. And I've always keep those things in mind. Well, as we come uh, then to, uh, you know, chapter 10 and 11 of Jephthah, who, as we already mentioned here in chapter 10, we kind of have that bomb shelter, box hole religion. You know, I, I'm in, a, I'm in fear of my life or something bad's happening, so I, Ask God to help me and make all sorts of rash promises. And then when I'm out, everything's right back to where it was, which is kind of how Israel has been. And uh, but I want to just remind ourselves that it's a big difference between a prodigal son returning home via repentance as he realizes his sin. And there's a difference between that and, for instance, an adulterous woman. Israel is always kind of, presented as an adulterous woman. It's the difference between that and an adulterous woman who comes back to her husband's purity only until she finds another man, which is kind of what Israel keeps doing. So, real repentance is always marked by real change. And that's the one thing we unfortunately don't see here. 
So, in chapter 11, then, let's read, first of all, the first nine verses to kind of get us a sense of what's going on with just that. We want to remind ourselves that, um, oh, and I also wanted to put this out here before we read. And if you can't see this, I apologize. <coughs> uh, but it just reminds us, each one of those uh, white squares are a judge, or is a judge. And you just see that they're really spread out all over the place. These, there's never any centralized king or judge or leader. They served in the area that they were. And probably if there was any judge that was maybe dealt with the whole nation, would be Samuel, which we haven't even got to yet. He's the last of the judges. But it just gives you an idea of where they came from. You can look these things up online. Uh, no, no problem. That they were just very localized. And I think sometimes you forget that. It, when, they, when he says he judged Israel, it means that he judged wherever, that little section of Israel, but he's very unlikely that any of them judged all of Israel. In fact, as we mentioned last week, uh, Samson and Samuel were contemporaries anyway. So just something to keep in mind. All right, let's read first nine verses of uh, chapter 11. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore his sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You should not have an inheritance in your father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And technically, legally, by the law, that was case, we'll see in a moment, that um, if you're born of a prostitute or in some way like that, as a way that you were cut off from the inheritance for to the tenth generation. So they, they really weren't doing anything wrong here as such. <coughs> and then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead, all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. So as we come to Jephthah, we immediately see that his dealing with the Gileadites, which was kind of where he's from, because that was the name of his dad, and, and some of this, I think, is anachronistic, where probably the town was eventually called Gilead after his dad, or perhaps it was even at that time, but, you know, you, you just, this is someone later on recounting some of these uh, stories, and this is how they would know this town. But, um, you see how it kind of corresponds a little bit with how God and the Israelites have been uh, their relationship here now for several years, for many years, several generations. There's rejection, there's distress coming upon them, there's repentance, uh, an appeal for help, and then reconciliation. So, you see, this is how they're treating God. Well, God, we need your help. 
but God helps them now. We, well, we don't need you anymore. Then, then you know, rinse the teeth, right? And so this is Jephthah kind of going to do the same thing. But in that, you kind of see something else. In fact, let me just, uh, I quoted this verse a minute ago. No one born of a forbidden union, this is in Deuteronomy 23, may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. And uh, that's a, a verse in context, a lot of context. But as we said, technically, legally, uh, they had the right to uh, hold this against Jephthah under the law. That, uh, to be born illegitimately was a, a surge. And, and, you know, it was a something that was not just uh, demeaning to the woman, to the, the parents or whoever, but also the child. And, and again, we have to kind of separate the old covenant and what situation there with today as we'll do here in a moment. But if you were illegitimate, it meant something. It, it, it was a problem. Because God's people were to have a certain testimony, a certain way of doing things, and when that didn't happen, there was consequences to it. Doesn't mean though that we we don't live under the law. So we're going to see in a moment that how we cheat, treat some of that situation is different. But it's not difficult to see the similarity with Jesus' situation as he comes into his own. Why was Jesus? Rejected. Well, primarily he was rejected because, uh, you know, one of the things he had to deal with was they felt he was illegitimate. I mean, it was it's common today that you know the Jews to say Jesus was a bastard. You know that that you know they don't have to listen to anything he says. He was rejected. Uh, the Jews saw him as illegitimate, and so therefore not fit to be the Messiah. And had he been illegitimate, it probably would have been a a reason to uh, reject him. But he wasn't, of course, you know, illegitimate. It just apparently to them it was. But by Acts 2, 23, when Peter is preaching to the Jews at uh, the time of Pentecost in Jerusalem, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter said to them, Repent to be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this one that you have rejected, you're going to have to change your opinion about him. You're going to have to see him for who he is. We notice how that Jephthah, being rejected by his brothers, what does he do? He gathers around himself out outcast uh, from society. And so how did the religious elite Accused Jesus. What did they, did they not accuse him of eating with sinners, with the unlearned, with the, uh, the, the scum of the earth, of the society? So there's, it, it's a type. When you read about Jephthah, you say, hey, you know what? That reminds me of something. I think it reminds us a little bit about how Jesus Christ was treated. Another interesting thing to consider when studying Jephthah is how the Lord prepares him. God has a use for him, and from his birth, he is preparing him for it, which means he's going to have to go through some intense trials, and he's going to have to be rejected by his brothers and by the, his home people, his hometown. Uh, and, and that meant being born illegitimately. And so it's just reminded that, you know, God's put you in a situation. It might be a very unfortunate situation, but God's 
prepared you for something. And so we always have to keep in mind, Romans 8.28, it, it can't be an, an overemphasized verse in my opinion. All things are being, are working together for my good if I'm a child of God. And if you don't, if that doesn't become a fabric, part of the fabric of your spiritual life, you're going to struggle. That'd be good for us to remember that God can and will use us as he sees fit. And that someone might come into our lives that maybe doesn't have the most, maybe has an unsavory background or problem. And be careful here because God has sent us to minister to such people, but God might be going to use that person. And just because maybe it's not who you would have chosen or something, be careful about judging people in that sense. His pedigree is not very good. That he's not hanging out with the pre-approved people, but he's the one God has chosen. So we always want to be careful about making up our mind about who God can use and who God can't use. You know, when we turn, we, we use the term illegitimate, uh, probably not so much today, but of course bastard was, uh, kind of a, a word that was used for this, a person like this. And the problem, one of the problems with that is that it stigmatizes the child. And I think again, us thinking about how we deal with this under the new covenant, we gotta be very, very careful there because it was not the child's fault. It was the parents. So, the stigma should be on the parents, and I don't have a problem with that, although that's got to be done in a, in a right Christian way too. But let's be careful about stigmatizing the innocent, right? That God has given life to a child, and we want to treat him as a child born, a, a, any human being born in the image of God. And, and, and one reason for that is because <clears throat> there's a sense in which we're all like this. We're all because of of what happened in Eden, we're born alienated from God. We're born in an illegitimate situation. And God had mercy on us, just like he does just that. And so we have to be very careful about this. We are a bunch of social misfits, but we're the ones that God has given salvation to, and we should therefore, that that he said so often, how I am loved must be the motivation how I treat others. So we've been called to be the misfits of society. That's okay because we're going to see here in First Corinthians uh, in a week or two, if we get to well, a couple, two or three weeks. Well, now with Ed coming through about a month, get to the end of chapter one of First Corinthians. We're going to see God has chosen the weak things, the, the despised things of society, to shame the uh, those who think themselves to be more than they are. So. In uh, verses 12 of chapter 11, verses 12 to 28, uh, before Jephthah gets ready to uh, fight against the Ammonites, he first tries to reason with them. Uh, Israel has, and, and he makes here a number of three or four points to try to refute the Ammonites thinking that they have a right to come up against Israel. Israel has been careful, first of all, he says, to honor everyone's boundaries when they came into Canaan. We kind of we saw a little bit about this in Numbers and Deuteronomy. Um, Moab and Edom were on the southern uh, east, eastern side of Jordan. That's kind of where uh, 
Israel came first, and they uh, asked permission to go through their land. Permission was not given in some cases, and when and it wasn't, they would go around the land. And so he says, first of all, uh, we haven't, uh, you know, uh, we never attacked you. You know, Moab and Edom didn't want them to pass through, so we didn't. Uh, Shehan, the Sion, the uh, king of the Ammonites, Amorites at that time, didn't even uh, just attack us. We didn't even try to go through his land, and he just attacked us where he And so he says, just the land of, that's why the land of Gad and Reuben on the eastern side of Jordan became Israel through legitimate welfare. In other words, when we were coming in there, we asked permission, we were attacked, so hey, that's the spoils, uh, spoils of war. If you attack us, and we win, then it's all right. They took that land. And uh, so in uh, verse 23 of chapter 11, he says, so, the, so then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites, now, not to be confused with the Ammonites, who are, remember what Ammon was one of the sons of Lot, and he was just he was his daughter, the different people, but the same area. He's referring back to the Amorites. Remember, they are the ones who, because of their sin, they kind of come up before the Lord, and it was time for the Israel to destroy the Amorites because of their sinfulness. So he says that the God of Israel dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and, you, and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? But basically what he's saying is, our God, and this was a, a legitimate way of thinking in that time, by the, certainly by the pagans, our God gave us this land. Uh, your God did not give you that land. Uh, so that should tell you something right there, because that's how it usually works. Whatever God, stronger God can gives a victory to that army. So he's kind of using an argument from history. Um, you have no right to uh, this land because uh, it's a legitimate spoil of warfare. The second point in verse 24 is kind of argues some theology, uh, which is what I just pointed to, that God gave us this land, your God didn't, so there's nothing we can do about that. Thirdly, in verse 25, he argues for precedent. He says, Balak, remember Balak in Numbers, hiring uh, Balaam to uh, first Israel. He said he never fought against us because we never gave any reason for war. And so your complaint is invalid. Otherwise, Balak would have done the same thing you're doing. But we did not invade his land. So we didn't invade your land. So um, what's going on here? And then his next point is from Silas where he says, you have waited 300 years to complain about this. You say, why? Why now? In other words, again, you haven't had any problem with any of this up until now, and now all of a sudden you're making a scene over it. So, it's just kind of interesting that he, he goes through all this, he's trying to persuade them, and it's not doing any good. And it's just clearly you're looking for an excuse to fight. And it's interesting, he knew his history, he, he was educated, these are people who, you know, they had the Pentateuch, he had read the Pentateuch, he understood the history of Israel. And then in verses 29 through uh, the end of the chapter, I think we have really the, the main lesson here, the thing we need to look at the closest, certainly the most interesting thing. 
simply the actual battle and before the battle, we see the vow that Jephthah makes where uh, he says in verse 30, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, and really the Spirit of the Lord had already come upon Jephthah. I think Jephthah knew that. Uh, you know, it had every reason to be confident anyway, but for some reason it makes his vow. Whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer up for a burnt offering. And you can only imagine the commentaries of books that have been written over what's going on here. But it is tragic. I don't know if there's any way around it. We'll see why here in a moment. But someone said, victory is now swallowed up in sorrow because indeed the Lord does give the victory and he comes home and uh, the first thing that comes out of the house is and uh, some said, well, he, you know, back then animals often lived in the house and had stock, so the animals would come out. Uh, and, you know, it, is it possible? Yes. Is it probable? No. I don't think so, because what you I don't think you can have the idea that, they, you know, what animals come out and greet me when I come back, right? It's, it's going to be a, someone, a person. And, uh, so he makes this vow, I think a very rash, foolish vow, when uh, he had no reason to make it. And then also, to me, what hits me is that, well, you made this vow uh, to offer up someone other than yourself. Well, how magnanimous of you to do that, right? Uh, you know, that you're, in, in making a vow to the Lord, which sounds, it could have been a spiritual thing, a, a thing of faith, you, you, you've reduced it to something to work. You can make somebody else, perhaps. And perhaps you thought a slave was going to come out, or a servant, or whatever. Not that that really changes anything. Who knows? And, and again, I, I think we would see in a moment that been, you know, this has been a controversial passage, exactly what's going on here for thousands of years. I don't think that's necessarily the point, but it is certainly something interesting to think about. Sacrificing someone else really isn't much of a sacrifice for one thing. Now, he was very sorry he did it because it was his daughter. I'm sure he regretted it. But at the end of the day, you're sacrificing somebody else, right? You're making them really make the sacrifice. And so it's just bad all the way around. Some people say, well, he really doesn't have human sacrifice in mind. And uh, what he's really saying is he's going to sacrifice her much like uh, Hannah did with Samuel, and she was going to live uh, at the tabernacle and serve there, and she would remain a virgin for the rest of her life because of that. And I think that's problematic, first of all, because he talked about a birth sacrifice. And people have, in fact, it wasn't until the Middle Age that anybody came up with the idea that perhaps he didn't really sacrifice her because, you know, just, well, there's no way he could have made a human sacrifice. God would and, and notice here, God is completely silent here. God doesn't say that he accepts that, that he agreed with it or anything. But people say, oh, this is so bad. He couldn't possibly mean human sacrifice. He, he just meant that she would be kind of like a female Nazarite. Uh, you know, to take this vow of celibacy, whatever. Well, um, and I doubt very seriously that's the case. It's possible, but I think it kind of enforced that Hebrew scholars 
translators say that that is not really how you can look at these words. You really got to kind of be reading things into it. Clearly from his word, from his words in verse 24, he knew about false gods and that their human sacrifice. So you would wonder why he would do that. And that's why some people say he just really couldn't be talking about human sacrifice. But I think what we have to see here is that one of the things that every account in the book of Judges does, it did it with Gideon, it does it with the best, we're going to see it with Samson, is that at their best, these men just fail visibly to really be the kind of judges they should be. And I think that's really what's going on here. Just half for all his good qualities, he, he believed in Yahweh, he makes a vow to Yahweh, but the what ha- what's happened all through this book? We've seen men failing miserably at being leaders, and who have been some of the ones who have suffered the worst for it? The women. We see here this his daughter suffers ultimately for the failure of these men. You know, this is what judges are showing us is the low point of Israel's history in so many ways. They're just not doing very well. And then also, it's been pointed out, and if you read through the whole chapter 27, Leviticus 27, you see this. But it says there, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, let the valuation of a male be 20 years old up to 60 years old, shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And you find out that there is a monetary vow, or uh, amount, Put upon a person, depending on whether he's male, female, out the age, and all that kind of stuff, so that if you don't want to let, if you vow them to the Lord's service, you can buy them back. And and some commentators have said, you know, why did he not realize that he he could have made a, a given the monetary equivalent for his daughter and saved her from this? And again, so that's something else we wonder about why he didn't do that. Not know about it, but uh, I think that it's uh, difficult to say that what when she goes away for two months to mourn her virginity, uh, to say, well, she's mourning the fact that she's going to not be able to have children for the rest of her life. Well, she'd had the rest of her life before that, and uh, but to mourn it for two months means probably that she was going to be sacrificed. So I, I think that it's, it's very difficult to get around the fact that he ends up sacrificing her as a burnt offering as he found uh, for the Lord. And perhaps the Lord sends the daughter out to discourage us to remind us, don't make rash vows. That's certainly, I guess, something we can point out. But I think it could overall keep the uh, context of this book about the low state of Israel, the spiritual leader among its leaders, the, spirit, the low point spiritually among its leaders. It's, it's the theme of the book in a lot of ways. As the leadership of Israel digresses, the women suffer the consequences as well as everybody else. In fact, the only obvious people of any apparent godly character in the entire book are women, at least, that, or nothing bad is said about. And I would just make a point here, kind of an aside, I guess. But it's about leadership here. I, I think 
they like when they can suffer when they badly uh, I, I had a, a, a member, one of the professors in uh, school made this point. I, I actually heard somebody, I know in this church or somebody else recently, I heard someone make a very similar point. He said that you can always tell a what kind of husband a woman has by looking at you know, again, it might be a little overstated, I think but what he's saying is that by seeing a woman, how she presents herself, how she takes care of herself, her attitude, her disposition, says a whole lot about what's going on at home, what she has to deal with at home. And I've always thought about that, you know, and, and it's been convicting to me sometimes, but, but, but I think it's true. Because I've seen women who have been, who are beaten down at home, who, who live, and it can work the other way, certainly, but as the leaders and as the male, we understand that primarily it's the woman and the children who suffer if they, if a husband is a bad husband, a bad father. And, and when I see women who have no self-confidence, who don't like to open up their mouth, who, who you can just see, you can tell, she is uh, beaten down in some way at home. And I don't know if she's physically, that's a whole other issue. But there's someone who is not loved, who's not cared for, who's not... Uh, in other words, if you... A uh, husband's goal should be to give her, his wife every opportunity to serve the Lord and be everything that she could be. If, you have a, if you're a good leader, just like in a church or anywhere, in your job, if you're the boss, your job is to get everything, the full potential out of those under you, right? And that should be what we look, want to do with our wives. And so many times you see a man think that, no, uh, he, and he might be a good boss at, at, at his job if he's, a, if he's a boss. And he understands that at work, but when he comes home, he sees his wife as someone who's supposed to him. And she suffers from that. And uh, so I just think that's maybe a point to make every once in a while. You certainly see this in judges. Well, she voluntarily submits to this. But again, you see that she is uh, on a higher spiritual plane, I think, than her father in this case. Um, but anyway, she, she does mourn her virginity, which is interesting that she doesn't mourn it doesn't say that she's mourning the fact that she's going to be sacrificed in some way at the end of her life. She's mourning the fact that she's not going to have children. Which to me, just it's, it's, it's just a great thing to see in the Old Testament. There's a, such a great contrast between many women today who seem to view children as a hindrance to their careers. We have abortion for every ridiculous reason. Uh, inconvenience. I don't, and, and again, think about it. Well, a lot of abortions are because you've been taught, you've been un, you, 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 you've taken part in sexual immorality, and you've gotten caught by getting pregnant, and so, well, so that I don't receive a stigma, so nobody thinks bad about me, I'm gonna murder my child. It's not much different than what we see, you know, here. You have this idea that, uh, um, children are a father, and yet she's mourning not her death so much as the fact that she is not going to have a child because that was part of the Israel 
the believing Israel, they were waiting for a city not made with hands. They were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for the kingdom to come to redeem them. And so it was a, every time a woman had a, especially a male child, it was, could this possibly be the, the one, the long-awaited one? What a totally different attitude towards having children we see today so often. So we need to be very careful that we don't forget these things. Children are a blessing. They're human life, regardless of the circumstances around having a child. And I'll just point this out to our girls here. For instance, if you, God forbid, get pregnant before you're married, don't compound it and make it worse the burden of child. It will bring about consequences. And you would either, you know, you might have to put up for adoption, raise yourself, whatever. That is something you have to work through. Don't make it worse. And the church is here not to condemn you, but you're going to have to face the reality of what you did. But the church is here to help you get right with God, to recognize what you've done, to repent of that, and to move forward. And we want to do that. We're not going to stand here and judge you. God's already going to take care of that. You know, in one sense, judge getting pregnant. But let's not make it worse. God has now brought you to that point. And it goes with the guys, too, because I'm not one to let the guys off the hook if you've been involved in something like that. But let's, we're going to work together. And I don't want you to ever, because I think sometimes girls do this because they feel like they've got no hope. But the church is here to give you hope and to say, well, you know what, this has happened now. Let's, what are we going to do right? How can we make the best of this and, and honor God anyway for the life that we've given to you? So, again, uh, just want to make sure that we say those things, but too often those things are not said if, if, if people think that they have no way around but there are ways, always right ways to do things not sin. So, uh, let's just close up by just referring to chapter 12. We won't get into this too much now, but uh, after the battle, here come the men of Ephraim and why didn't you uh, Call us. We wanted to fight. You didn't fight. And uh, Jeff Half knows better. And he, you know, Gideon was kind of was able to pacify them. Jeff Half, you know, he was to have none of it. He wasn't happy about it. So they end up having a fight because it, Ephraim comes up to fight. And so Jeff Half gives them a fight and destroys the 42,000 men die. It's interesting here that as Ephraim is trying, some of the men are trying to escape, trying to sneak back in the border. They set up a little uh, test here to find out. Because, you know, how do you know this guy's Ephraim? They're all Israelites, right? Well, they have, as often do in certain locations, you have a different way of speaking, right? And so, in uh, verse 6, 5 and 6, it said, uh, And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites, and when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? They said, No. But they're lying. But they said to him, Say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth. Because they spoke a little differently. And 
he could not pronounce it right, so they, they killed him. 42,000 people like fell. Kind of like a New Englander. Say, you know, you have another battle of the states, you got north and the south, and they're somehow gone on the wrong side of things, trying to get back into New England and uh, up there. And uh, he said, well, okay, they parked the car. And they said, park the car. You know, well, I'm sorry, you, you lose out. I thought, well, I wonder if it's someone from Pittsburgh, and they're trying to get back out. They say, say you guys. And, and so the guy from Pittsburgh says, yins. And, well, he's, he's in trouble, right? Well, that's what's going on here. And uh, so, one thing I'll make this point and then we'll stop. Uh, what we're seeing, among other things, is Judah increasing. Ephraim, uh, Benjamin, we're going to see here in just a few chapters, they're almost going to be wiped out of the tribe. Judah is increasing. Simeon is, is never was much to start with. Uh, it's becoming stronger and stronger. And David's come along here pretty soon. And uh, you wonder why after Saul, then when the, the, uh, they split, it was the northern tribe and Judah. Because by the time of the split, Judah is so predominant that it basically becomes what southern kingdom is known as. And, and you see some of the reasons here. Ephraim is 42,000 men are wiped out. Benjamin, almost the whole tribe is going to be wiped out. And so we, we see uh, the accuracy of some of these things that we get into. We'll stop there today. Any questions or comments? Yes, Violet. Pray for your blessings upon this next hour and that you would speak to us. Lord, as we begin our look at First Corinthians, that uh, you would just bless Lord, our efforts here today and be something that's profitable. Something that your people can be edified by.